Well, as I said, this, section ha uh, this chapter has four sections, and so we'll just read each section, and then I'll talk a little about it and see if we can get through it in one class. Does that sound like a plan to y'all? All right. So let's go ahead and read section one. The liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan, and dominion of sin, from the evils of, evils of affections, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation, and also in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but, like, but a childlike love and willing mind, all which were common also to believers under the law. But under the New Testament, the liberty of the Christian is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected, and in great boldness of access to the throne of grace, and in fuller communions of the free spirit of God that mark believers under the law did not ordinarily partake of. I'd like to spend a whole class just on that one section, wouldn't you? I'd like to spend a couple classes on that one section. But notice the first freedom that is given. Christ has given us the freedom to be His in the gospel. Notice the list of things that we are now free of. We're free from the guilt of sin. We're free from the condemning wrath of God. Free from the curse of the moral law. We're delivered from this present evil world. Satan's bondage, we're not under it anymore. The dominion of sin, its presence remains, that's for sure, but we're not under its dominion anymore. We can actually, by the Spirit, say no and fight and war against our flesh and our sin. Death will not have its victory. Christ has his victory. We also have free, notice, notice this, not only do we have the sin and the wrath removed from us, but we also have free access to God. Now that's enough to make us just stop and freak out alone. If he gave us simply forgiveness of sins and all that stuff, we, we, we would have eternity of praise. But you see, God doesn't just want to forgive you. He actually wants you. I say this a lot because I don't think we often realize it. Do you realize that Jesus actually likes you? I don't even like me most of the time. Do you realize that Jesus actually wants you? In this world, not a lot of people want you. They want the things about you or they want the things you can do for them. But Jesus wants you. He did everything for you. You don't add anything to him. He simply loves you and simply wants you. And the freedom that we have in him is being able to boldly come. I'm thinking Hebrews here. I think, I think, I think Pastor Bullock is preaching through Hebrews. You got to, chapter ten, got to chapter 10 yet? Yep. We can boldly enter the throne room of grace because we're a child of God. He's given us the freedom to be his in the gospel. So, This also has another freedom for us. I didn't write it on here. But because the gospel is true, we have the freedom to be sinners saved by grace. 
We have the freedom to be sinners saved by grace. In life, do you find yourself having to pretend a lot and not really be the real you? You know, maybe at work there's a certain way you have to act and, and you, you really wish you didn't have to, you know, act that way. Maybe, you know, you have to, you know, speak in certain patterns that you kind of wish you didn't. Maybe at school you want people to like you a little more and so you, you kind of hide who you are. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Thank you. <laughs> in our families, with our friends, in society. Um, I'm from California originally. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm not there anymore. Um, but uh, I have a lot of experience in the South. And uh, one of the things that is common is you know, if someone asks, how are you? Uh, well, you better be ready to not just say fine, right? <laughs> or if you ask someone, you better be re- willing to stop because they're going to start telling you how they're doing, right? And they're going to start talking about their grandmama surgery that you don't know about. And I'm like, I just met you, you know, okay. You know, they're, they're going to do all their thing, right? That's, that's, that's just the politeness of it. Uh, my, my, my wife is from Michigan. They don't, there's none of that. It's, you know, you know, how are you doing? What's your business? And off they go, you know. <laughs> um, but, but sometimes that question, even that question, how are you? And you really just want to say, not good, right? Not good. No, I'm not good right now. Things are actually really terrible. Let me tell you about them, stranger. Right? <laughs> but you don't do that, right? Because uh, you'll probably get a bless your heart and they'll run away. Um, do you realize you don't have to pretend with Jesus? Do you realize that Jesus found you when you were dead in your sins and trespasses? When you were unholy, when you were ungodly, when you were his enemy, he set his love upon you then. He knows every sin you've ever committed, every sin you think about committing, every sin you will commit, and he died for you anyway. Do you realize that, maybe I'll say it this way, You ever felt so sinful you can't come to Jesus? Here we are talking about this once again. Do you realize he already knows it? Do you realize he wants that relationship restored with you? Do you realize you're not hiding anything from him? Do you realize that he's given us repentance and confession as a gift? We're free to do that because the condemning wrath of God has been removed. Jesus isn't mad at you for that. He bore all the righteous anger of his father for you? Do you realize now that you're free to be a sinner saved by grace? You don't have to pretend. You don't have to pretend anymore in Christ. Does that make sense to y'all? Before we move on, thoughts, comments, questions. All right. Either really clear or really confusing. All right. Well, I started off heavy. Let's lighten it up. We can have some fun with this one. Let's look at section two. God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it, if matters of faith or worship, so that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience 
is to portray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of implicit faith and absolute and blind obedience is to destroy the liberty of conscience and reason also. Okay, we gotta, we gotta talk about some phrases in here to know what they were referring. Has anybody, was anybody here raised Roman Catholic? Okay. Okay, y'all are old enough to remember when Rome actually taught Romish doctrine. Um, have you seen the size of the Roman Catechism? It's big, isn't it? Kids, you can't, have, you can't memorize that one. It's too big. Um, there's also the volumes of canon law. There's also um, part of the tradition are readings of church fathers that aren't even perhaps codified. There is volumes and volumes and volumes upon volumes of things that the Roman church teaches. Now, here's the thing. They know most people in the Roman church aren't going to read, know, and memorize all that stuff. Most aren't. Most, most, most Roman Catholics you meet are pretty nominal, like most Christians you meet. Um, you know, they know, they know something that they're a sinner. They, they, they know something that Jesus has saved them from their sin, and, and that's, 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 that's good for them. Rome knows that, and so what Rome has is an idea that it's okay if you don't know everything we teach. You just have to have faith that it's right when we teach it. That's what they call implicit faith. Does that make sense? You don't necessarily need to know it. Just know that we know it, and just know that when we teach it, and if it seems weird, just believe it. Does that make sense? That, am I describing it right, former Roman Catholics? Okay. <laughs> um, Rome has a concept of the tradition. I, I, I love tradition. Tradition's great. Tradition is wonderful. But tradition is a really bad master. And what Rome has done is what Luther calls the magic bag. He calls the tradition of the church the magic bag. It, that, that's fine. I, I know you don't see purgatory in Scripture. Let me reach in the magic bag. Oh, here it is. Uh, prayers to saints. You don't see that in Scripture? Oh, okay, let me reach in. There. Oh, there it is. And you can just pull out whatever you need at the time, whether it's the Assumption of Mary, whether it's uh, supererogation, or whatever it is. They can just pull it out if they need it. Um, the problem with that is multitude. But you see, it's not a new idea. If you have your Bible, turn to Mark 7. Now, it's important to point out that Rome doesn't believe that their tradition came from nowhere. They're quick to point to Scripture to back it up. Doesn't it say in, in, in Thessalonians that, 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 um, that, that you, you, whether you were to receive, whether it's from a written letter or a tradition from us, you're supposed to follow that, right? Doesn't the Scripture say that? Therefore, there's unwritten traditions that we should follow, and that's doctrine just as much. What's the assumption in that belief? What's the assumption that they have that's not being challenged? How about that what was orally passed on is different than what was written, right? Do you realize that like not everybody um, had the letter to the Thessalonians, right? They the Thessalonian church had it, right? It hadn't gone out to the whole world at that point yet, right? And so what's he saying? 
you know, I'm writing this stuff down, but if you've just heard it from us too, follow that, right? It doesn't mean that was extra stuff. That's an assumption that they've read into it. So it's important to say, as, as, uh, as John X said at Luther's trial, all heretics quote scripture, right? <laughs> all heretics quote scripture. Not calling Rome a bunch of heretics. What I'm saying is that even those in big air quote scripture. So that's what they use. Now check this out. It's not a new concept. Uh, verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him some, with, uh, some of, the, of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. So there they are, they're eating, and they didn't wash their hands. This isn't an issue of germs. This isn't their mommy telling them to go wash their hands before they eat because they don't want to get sick. There's something more going on here. Now, you notice in verse 3, there's a parenthesis. I hope you learn to love parentheses in the Scripture because that's when the Holy Spirit explains the thing, right? That's a good, that's a good thing because there's more to this. We didn't get this. He says, for the Pharisees... And all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. Now, what is that? Okay, you notice this is the Pharisees talking. There were two main groups in Israel. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? The Sadducees didn't believe very much in the supernatural. They mainly controlled the temple complex. The Pharisees, Pharisaism started during the exile after the destruction of the temple. They reasoned that we are in exile because we broke our covenant with God and disobeyed his commandments. Were they right? Right. So they said, we're going to make sure that never happens again. And so they decided what they're going to do is they're going to build a fence, is what they called it, around the law. So if the law says you can't take five steps, we're going to say you can't take three steps. Right. That way we'll really protect it right? Um, I, I, I teach my son, don't touch the stove, period, right? Because one day it's going to be really hot, and it's one of those Formica ones that you can't tell the, burn, you know, the burner's on really or not unless you see the light, and, and my son ain't going to stop, and he's just going to put his hand up there one day, and he's going to hurt himself because it's, it's still cooling down because it takes nine years to cool down. So what they did is they said that, yes, we love Torah. They memorized it. They loved the Bible. They loved the law. But there was a second Torah, an oral Torah, that was given to Moses on Sinai. And that was passed down through faithful rabbis and faithful rabbis and faithful rabbis till here we are today, and it's equal with the law of God. And to break that is to break the law of God. My Roman Catholic friends, raised Roman Catholic friends, does that sound familiar to you? Because that's no different than the tradition that Rome teaches today. They believe it was passed down from the, uh, from the apostles, orally from Jesus, down into the church, and it holds equal weight. Again, not a new idea. Now, when we talk about this, it's important to realize Man-made doctrines and man-made laws and man-made commandments are dangerous for two reasons. One, men make laws they think they can keep. Men make laws they think they can keep. If you tell a human not to do something, watch us, we're going to do it, right? They think they can make laws that they can keep. So one of two things happens. Either they go, wow, look at me. Look how good I'm doing. Man, I'm keeping the law of God so well. 
The problem is they're keeping man's law. They're not keeping God's law. Or it comes to the other side. I can't do this. I'm, I'm not a church person then. You know, I, I can't be involved in this Christianity thing if that's what, if this, what it is. I don't measure up. Have you met people like that? I bet you every dollar I don't have in my wallet because who carries cash anymore that they probably came from a Christian background and they probably came from a church that taught nothing but law. Moreover, it was man-made law. I can speak for my own family on that one. They've never experienced law and gospel, which is what we're commanded to teach, both. And so, here they are. And so, continuing verse 4, And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And, they, and there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. You've got to wash your couch a certain way because Gentile dirt might have got on it, Right? None of that is in Scripture. That was in their oral tradition. And so when they see Jesus' um, disciples following freedom in not being bound by the laws of men, they say, you're a lawbreaker. And they're binding their conscience to something that's not in Scripture. And so verse 5, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesied of you, hypocrites, as it is written? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus smelled it right away. And he says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. That's direct from Scripture, right? Not, not arguing with that one, right? And whoever reviles mother or father must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. So what's he talking about? Korban, this korban rule. It, you know, in, in those days, there was no welfare, there was no social security, there was no nothing. Uh, honor your father and mother really meant something because um, if no one supported them in their old age, they'd starve to death and die. It's simple as that. No one would be able to care for them. And so what if you said, you know, I, I know mom and dad, you're starving and you're sick and you really could use this, but you know, all the money that I've earned, I've given it to God which is more important than you, right? And, and, and of course, that doesn't mean you have to be destitute. You can still, you know, live your life. But, you know, any gain that I would have had, it's given to God, so I, I can't do that. Now, let's say someone made a vow like that and says, my mom and dad are starving. Notice, he says, you won't even permit them now to do it. You stop them from doing it. You've bound their conscience to something that's not in Scripture. You've bound it to a tradition of men. Do you see? And he says more than that, there's many such things of this that you do. God alone is Lord of the conscience. That means the elders of this church, I'm going to speak for them, cannot command you or bind your conscience to anything that is not explicitly said or by good and necessary consequence derived from Scripture. Elders, is that correct? 
Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. They cannot bind your conscience. They might have a belief of something. But if it is not explicitly laid down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence deduced thereof, they are, they, you are not bound by that. Um, I, I, as, as Al said, I went to Westminster, California, and uh, when I was there, John Fesco was there. And uh, he's at RTS Jackson now. Or did he go to Atlanta? He's in the RTS system. You know, for a while, RTS was, you know, their goal was, you know, a, a seminary in every zip code. Um, so I'm waiting for the Richmond campus. Um, it seems like that, doesn't it? <laughs> but um, uh, he gave a Sunday school one time where he was talking about, uh, he just started talking about the weird eschatological views with the men in the Westminster Assembly. Whoa. Um, there's, there's people setting dates, there's, 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 there's these arithmetic and math equations about when Christ will come that, that would put Harold Camping to shame. I mean, they had, they're, they're these weird concepts. And, the, and, the, and then he, he spent like, like 50 minutes of the class teaching on this stuff. And we're like, what? What, what is this? And then he went and he read in the Confession of Christ's Return. He goes, you know, that's pretty boring. You notice none of that is in here. Because they might have a belief on that. They might be able to defend it. But if it's not clearly stated, you're free from believing it. Does that make sense? You might have a conviction about something, but you cannot bind it to your neighbor. I came from the OPC. J. Gresham Machen um, was denied the chair of apologetics at Princeton. Um, and it would have had attached to it um, him teaching ethics. It should have been a rubber stamp. Who else would be more qualified than J. Gresham Machen? But the reason it was denied him was because he didn't believe in prohibition. And here's the irony. He's a, he was a teetotaler. But Scripture does not forbid the consumption of alcohol. He wrote a paper saying, look, drunkenness is a sin. That needs to be repented of. But I cannot bind someone's conscience to say you must therefore abstain from all alcohol. Matter of fact, it should be illegal in the country. I can't do that. Scripture does not allow me to do that. Does that make sense? But of course, well, let's just look at another passage to back this up. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 10. Starting at verse 23. Paul says, all things are lawful. Notice it's, it's in your Bible, it's probably in, 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 in uh, parentheses. Uh, or quotation marks, excuse me, um, because he's quoting like a saying that they had. Well, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the grounds of conscience. Okay, what's this talking about? Um, have you ever heard of Pliny the younger the Pliny the younger he was a uh, governor of Bithynia um, my one of my professors Steve Baugh said that his letters are the next to the Bible the most important book to read if you want to understand the Bible because here's a man writing in these times a very Roman man a very powerful man um, talking about life in the ancient world and it is it, they are extremely interesting um, but one of the things that when he wrote to Emperor Trajan, he says, look, I have these Christians. I don't know what to do with them. 
I can't find any precedent that it's illegal. Um, of course, we tortured a few because that's what the Romans do. When they catch you, of course, they're going to torture you for a while. Um, but, uh, you know, some said, uh, you know, they, they were like 20 years ago. Um, you know, but the place, the place is just crazy up here. No one's buying anything from the meat markets. Um, and we just don't know what to do with these Christians. So I, I, before I do something, I, I thought I'd ask you, Emperor. Um, when they did a sacrifice in the temple of the pagan gods, they would sell the meat, make a little extra money. But that meat was really cheap, right? Because it was blessing, you know, to the people. Um, that was really cheap meat. But for some, excuse me, for some people who came out of paganism, that was just too far for them. I, I, I can't go and partake in that. I'm sorry. I, I just can't do it. But then there are others who are like, oh, I don't care. Meat is meat. It's dead, whatever. Jesus is Lord. And those gods don't exist. So I'm going to get some free. I'm going to get some cheap meat and we're going to have a barbecue. Right. Uh, in the ancient world, you didn't typically eat meat a lot. That was that was a luxury. Well, think about it this way. Um, most people lived hand to mouth, had some land that they worked. Right. And if you wanted if you wanted to to have meat, you would have to shoot your tractor. If you put it that way. Right. Literally, you know, that, that thing's going to keep you alive. Um, but here they are, and there's some people who have plenty of freedom to go in the meat market and say, I'd like a rack of ribs and, and praise Jesus to it, right? And there's some people who go, no, I can't do this. I remember when I used to do this, right? And so now there's this tension. And so you have the people who have a problem with it going, how could you do that? That's, that violated so many things. And then you have the other side going, no, it doesn't violate, violate a thing. Show me one passage. And now there's dissension in the church. Does that make sense? I can think of many things that can cause this in the church today because certainly our society is not polarized on everything. And certainly that hasn't creeped into the church. Come November 24, let's see how we're all doing. Just thought. So he continues. Verse 26, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. Don't ask. It's going to trip you up. Don't ask. Enjoy that the Lord has blessed you and you're able to have Christian fellowship with a friend and, and you're able to, to, to relax. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in a sacrifice, well, then don't eat it. Um, again, I went to West Cal and this didn't happen in my class. This happened a couple years ago. Um, in the, in a, we used to have a, a winter uh, world religions class and they would go to this Buddhist temple and they would go there and learn from the monks, you know, about their particular form of Buddhism and uh, then the monks would feed them. And some person at our school asked, has this been sacrificed in the temple? Oh, yes, absolutely. <sighs> hey, stop serving us lunch because of that, you know, because then this dude had a big issue with that, right? And it's like, don't ask. Just enjoy the food, right? You know, um, some places in the world, uh, I've been to China, I've been in Asia, some places in the world, it's really hard to find any meat or any vegetables, really, that haven't been part of some sacrifice somewhere in some way. Um, in China, there was a shrine to everything on everywhere. I mean, I saw once a shrine in a shrine. That was amazing. There was a shrine on top of the shrine, and in, in, in the, there was a shrine down there. I was like, they really shrined this place. Uh, in India, um, one, one, of my, one of my spiritual fathers, he was doing this mission uh, in India, and uh, they're getting ready to go on this boat, and um, 
his interpreter, because there's so many languages in India, you need an interpreter, um, said, uh, um, careful, don't step on the boat bracket there, that, that yellow one, that says God. And he just kind of said it passing. He was like, what? The boat bracket? He goes, yeah, it holds his boat together. His boat's able to you know, go and get food and prepare for his family. Yeah, that's what he worships, his, his boat bracket there. It says God. And he goes, well, what happens if it breaks? He'll get another one. It's okay, you know? <laughs> but, but the point is, is that sometimes in this world, it's really hard to avoid that, especially if you travel. And so notice what he says here, verse 29. Oh, pardon me, 28. If someone says to you, this has been offered in a sacrifice, then don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Notice, I do not mean your conscience, but his, Right? You are free from the guilt of that. Scripture doesn't say you can't eat meat sacrificed to idols. It doesn't say that. It says don't worship idols. It doesn't say anything about eating the meat. But for your conscience, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? See what he's saying here? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Right? For him, this is, this is, this is um, outreach. Right? Um, I enjoy good bourbon. Amen. Someone comes to my house that has had a history of an alcohol issue, I'm probably not going to break out the good bourbon, right? Um, there's a lot of situations like that. Sometimes I'm hanging out with people and I want to watch a movie. Can't watch those movies, right? You know, because they might have an issue with it. I'm not, for the sake of, 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 of my conscience, going to be bound to a tradition of men. Um. Side note, this is kind of why reform people, do I have until 10.30? 10.25, good. Um, this is why, uh, Scott Clark talked about this. This is why sometimes when people come to the reform tradition, they can be really prickly, I guess is the word, is because often they come from a church where there's a lot of tradition and then, and as, as Scott Clark says, it's like they're telling them you need to swim with lead weights, you know, and and then, and, then, and then the Reformed Church comes along, and they, they hear the gospel, and, and it says, well, actually, no, you can take those weights off, and you can swim freely. And, and people go, wow, this is wonderful. Look, look how much progress I'm making. This is great. And then they go, well, well, why do they tell me to put up the lead weights on anyway? And all of a sudden, they're against the church of the lead weight. Anybody know what I'm talking about? <laughs> so... Mm-hmm. Answer the fool or don't answer the fool, right? It depends. You know, it really depends. When he was in Jerusalem, I guarantee he wasn't eating Grandpa Maximus's roasted hog knuckles like he was in Galatia, right? Uh, but you're absolutely right. That's a great example. Our kids. Scripture says a lot about raising kids. Amen? However, how you work that out might look a little different because guess what? Your kid ain't my kid. Not just in the fact that I'm the one who's got to give account for how I raise my kids, but your kid simply isn't my kid. The discipline that works so amazing on your kids, which honestly, I don't believe you it did. Uh, I think you had struggles just like the rest of us, to be honest, right? Um, that 
works for your kid, but you know what? We may have tried that, and it doesn't work for ours. We find this more effective, right? You let your kids do that? Yeah, we've already talked about with them. We discuss it with them. We're open with them. We give them that freedom. How could you? Because we can, and we think it's wise, and we think it's smart. There's so many examples. Your, uh, your, your, your friend's kids don't have to look like your kids. Your marriage. Does Scripture say a lot about marriage? Yeah. You know what? Your marriage might look a little different than another person's marriage, and that's okay. Are there any violation of principles or laws or commandments being committed in that marriage? If the answer is no, then it's your opinion. You might have a good opinion. You might have a discussion with them. You might be able to sway them. But where the scripture is silent, you cannot condemn your brother or your sister. Okay, we're not going to, we're not going to, we're not going to spend the whole time. We're going to get through this. So let's look at three. They who, upon pretense of Christian liberty, do practice any sin or cherish any lust, do thereby destroy the end of Christian liberty, which is that being delivered out of the hands of our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Here's the counterpoint to the point he just made in two. Christian liberty is not freedom to sin. It is freedom not to sin. It is freedom to say no to sin. Shall we sin so grace may abound? What was Paul's answer? It's always fun to see who had King James and who didn't when I say that. <laughs> Meginita, the strongest negation that there is. No way, right? No, that's not what we're going to do. We're not going to say, well, you know, Jesus really likes forgiving me and I really like sinning. This is a great partnership we have here. That, that, that's not how this works. Um, but it's the freedom to say no to sin. It's building on this. Christ has taken away all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our fear. We no longer have fear of judgment. We no longer have fear of hell. We no longer have fear of his displeasure and, and his anger towards us. Christ has bore all of that. I'm now free to be a sinner before him, saved by grace. That means I'm also free to grow in him by his means of grace. It means I'm able, though the presence of sin still remains, its power is broken. I'm now free to walk in righteousness and holiness. It's not the freedom to sin. It's the freedom from sin. Let's turn to Galatians 5. Starting at verse 13. For, years, you, for, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one, lur, one, one, lur, one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. How many churches have been destroyed by misuse of Christian freedom, right? We start snapping at each other and devouring each other. 
And so someone says, wait a minute, where is any of this in Scripture? What, what are we doing here? Why is this the hill we're dying on? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody been in those churches? Anybody been in those presbytery meetings? This is where we're going to die on this hill? Okay. But he continues. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the, spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. But these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the thing that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, in case I forgot something, right? I warn you, as I warned before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. See, the freedom that he has there isn't licensed to sin. I'm free in Christ. I can do whatever I please. No, you're not. You're free to follow Jesus now. You're free to be a disciple. You're free to be a sinner saved by grace. You're free to have the power of the Spirit leading you and guiding you. You're free to walk with Jesus and stumble and pick, back, pick yourself back up. You're free to love others. And you're free to help them, walk them along the way. Yes, there's, there, there's times where we refrain. There's also times where we are able to share, you know, share with our brother, you know, we actually have freedom here. It's okay. I'm not, we're not sinning if I do this. It's okay. Maybe, maybe that's something you can grow in as well. Um, someone wrote, a, wrote a, a, a note once about the professional weaker brother. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where, where everything is just, oh, I'm just so weak, I'm so weak. Okay, well, that's great. Who's the weakest, the one who eats or the one who doesn't? Right. I'm, I'm just, but notice how it's always put as they're the strong one. How could you, right? The weaker one postures as the strong one. Sometimes, that's pride, and sometimes that could be confronted in love and say, you know, you're free not to do that. You're free to do that. I'm free to do that or not do that. And we're free to be brothers and sisters in Christ. And because the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. Um, maybe, I, maybe I can uh, finish with this one, and then I'll, we'll give an example. Number four, a little longer, but we'll get there. And because of the power which God hath ordained and the liberty which Christ hath purchased are not intended by God to destroy, but mutually to uphold and preserve one another. Sounds like what we read in Galatians, doesn't it? They who upon pretense of Christian liberty shall oppose any lawful power or the lawful exercise of it, whether it be civil or ecclesiastical, right? You can't go break the law in Jesus' name, right? 
You know, I can't go rob banks in Jesus' name, right? Even if I'm giving it to the church, right? You, you, you can't do that, right? You know, I mean, that, that's not something to do if there's a new building project here. You know, don't worry, I'll get the money. You know, it, we don't do that, right? Um, but, but whether it be ecclesiastical, too, because God has instituted a government in his church. And he's instituted law in his church. So it says, whether it be civil or ecclesiastical, resist the ordinance of God. And for their publishing of such opinions or maintaining of such practices as are contrary to the light of nature or to the known principles of Christianity, whether concerning faith, worship, or conversation, that means manner of life, or to the power of godliness or such erroneous opinions or practices as either in their own nature or in the manner of publishing or maintaining them are destructive to the external peace and order which Christ has established in his church, they may lawfully be called to account and proceeded against by censures of the church. In other words, Christian freedom is not freedom from lawful rule in the church. If I start teaching erroneous doctrines or live a scandalous life, there's a bunch of men who will get together and say, no, you can't do that. Right? Jesus loves you. He really does. And so in his love, he's given gifts to the church officers in this church all three officers my pca friends minister elder and deacon are gifts of love to you and it's i think i could speak for their hearts it's something that sometimes keeps them up with the weight of it that they have to give an account for how they managed god's church and how they managed god's sheep i think they feel the weight of that I do as a, as a teaching elder. We cannot say if, 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 if the session has um, called us to account of a, a clear violation of Scripture, we can't say, well, I'm free in Christ. You have no power here. No, in Christ they do. They can call you to account, call you to repent. And, and if we persist... Christ has given them the authority not to make, but to announce what has happened, that you've walked away from the faith. And even the harshest of, of church judgments can come down, which there's not an elder in the world who loves reading that pronouncement. That's something that breaks them down in tears. I guarantee it. I guarantee your elders weep, if not when they do it, soon after or before, when they know they have to read that kind of censure of excommunication. Right, guys? And they never stop praying that the Lord would restore. Churches may use discipline, and when they do so, it doesn't violate Christian freedom. Let, let's see this in action. Let's go to Galatians again, and I've got four minutes. Let's see if I can do it. So in Galatia, Paul's up in Galatia. He's doing a great work. People are coming to saving knowledge. It's not a very Jewish area right there. It's a very Gentile area. And uh, uh, all of a sudden, some people from Jerusalem come up, and Peter comes up. And look what happens here. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1. After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. For I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ, 
so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved by you. So even though Titus was a Greek, he wouldn't circumcise him. No, 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 no. You're not going to bind to my conscience what needs to be done to this man, and he's not going to be bound to your conscience. And from those who seem to be influential, what, who, uh, who, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I'd been trusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, free works to Peter's apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me to mine from the Gentiles. Do you think their ministries might have looked a little different? Peter's to, Gen, uh, to Jews and Paul to the Gentiles? Yeah, probably looked a lot different. Verse 9, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. That's something in Scripture, right? Notice verse 11. But when Cephas, that's Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came back, he, uh, when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So some friends from James come up there to see the work that the Lord is doing, and, and here's Peter the whole time eating roasted hog knuckles with everybody, and then all of a sudden, uh, oh, 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 them, oh, oh, we can't do this. Oh, I gotta, you know, I gotta go over here uh, and, and, and separate myself from these Gentiles. What does that communicate to them? You're not part of the church right? Notice what happens here. Verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas, the son of encouragement himself, even Barnabas was led astray. Like, you know how, how bad it's got to be if Barnabas is led astray? Barnabas is the one who brought Paul to the, 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 the apostles in the first place. They wouldn't believe him without Barnabas. I mean, if your nickname is the son of encouragement, you know, you got it, but even Barnabas was led astray by this. And so, Verse 14, when I saw their conduct was not in step with the, God, the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas for them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You notice now how an issue of Christian freedom now became a division within the church, so much so that the elder of the church, in this case Paul, had to step up and say, that ends now. You see what I mean? Sometimes these matters of freedom can end up destroying the faith of someone else. Sometimes they could put barriers up that need not exist. Sometimes they may bar people from the church that have every right in Christ to be here. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Good. <sighs> One minute over. All right. Any thoughts, comments, questions, queries, quibbles, complaints, disagreements? Anything? Well, thanks for letting me teach. This was super fun. Um, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the freedom we have in you. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a heart that, that receives others, a heart that receives others where they are, a heart free from the judgment of others, knowing that, that their sin has been judged by Christ and ours as well, that we are all equal sinners saved by grace. We all stand before our Lord equally and with our own conscience. Father, we pray that you would grow us in wisdom and knowledge in the scriptures, that we might walk in, in ways that are more holy and righteous before you, and that we might show our love to others, uh, helping them, walking with them, leading them, guiding them, and getting into the lives of others, walking beside them, not over them, but walking beside them, walking with them as we follow Christ, as we pick up our cross together and walk the road that, that, that your son walked for us. 
We pray, Lord, that you don't let us do this all by our own strength. We don't have it. We confess that we are weak and we are failing. We need your spirit, Lord. We need your spirit to guide us, to lead us, to help us put the next step forward when we can't do it. And we thank you, Lord, that your love never ends. Your mercy is unending and that you are moving us towards the promise that you have obtained for us and are holding at the right hand. Uh, your son is holding at your right hand. And we ask this all in Jesus' name, our great high prophet, priest, and king, the one who walks in perfect freedom. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you again, everybody.